Welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz, former F-14 Tomcat pilot for the United States Navy and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of two books. And my office has never been traditional. And while I'm used to working in fast-moving, dynamic environments, today we are slowing down to talk to a fearless leader on the mechanics of high performance, success, failure, and happiness. In short, we're on the hunt to discover what it takes to achieve more than we ever thought possible. Now, on to today's conversation. Today, I'm welcoming New York Times bestselling author, Sean Acor, to my office. Sean is a Harvard-trained researcher in the field of positive psychology, and he taught one of the most popular classes in Harvard University's history. Sean is one of the world's leading experts on the connection between happiness and success. And he's traveled to over 50 countries researching and lecturing on this subject. In fact, his TED Talk on happiness is one of the most popular ever with over 24 million views. I'm excited for this conversation today with Sean to explore really straightforward, doable ways that you can capitalize on the happiness advantage to shift your perspective, increase your joy, improve your performance, and maximize your potential. Sean, welcome to my office. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, gosh, I've been looking forward to having you on this uh, podcast in this conversation for for so long. Uh, our paths have crossed over the last several years uh, at a number of events. You and I both are a bit on the keynote circuit, if you will. But I'm always so uh energized and humbled after experiencing your presentation. So my first question for you is, how do you define happiness? What um, does it actually mean? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that's the starting point for all of this, right? Um, so for me, I think normally when we think about happiness, we think about pleasure. I think that's how most of the world thinks about it. It's the smile you feel when something good happens or that pleasure you get when you eat a cupcake or win a race or you, you know, open, you know, a, a box from Amazon, <laughs> right? But uh, happiness delivered. But part of what we're finding is um, that when we have a pleasure model for happiness, it actually gets us into a lot of trouble. Because um, what happens is as you start pursuing pleasure, as many people know, we've talked about this a lot, is you get on this hedonic treadmill where you keep chasing more pleasure. And eventually you need higher levels of pleasure and you can't sustain it or you fall off the treadmill. <laughs> One of the two things will happen. Um, when I first got into doing this research, I was actually at the Divinity School. So I was studying Christian and Buddhist ethics. And what I got fascinated by was how our beliefs about the world and the ways we define things change the way that we pursue those. And one of the things I learned was that um, the ancient Greeks didn't define happiness as pleasure, which is how the modern world does. They define happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. I think d definitions usually are inherently boring. <laughs> like if I heard a speaker and they started doing definitions, that's like how you're, we're told not to start talks, right? Like you don't start with right. like Webster's English Dictionary right. defines happiness as. Um, but I think this definition changes everything. I, I wish it was a conversation we would have with our kids, with our partners and spouses, with the people we try to lead. Because if happiness is pleasure, we pursue it one way. If happiness is the joy you feel moving towards our potential, it means two really important things. Joy is something you can experience even when life is not pleasurable, like 2020, like 2021, right? In the midst of the challenges that we were experiencing in the world, what we kept finding was that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of challenge, 
there's still moments of joy that could occur. If you think about it, we've only experienced happiness and joy in the midst of a broken and suffering world, right? In the midst of childbirth, not high levels of pleasure all the time, but moments of joy could actually correspond with some of the highest levels of fear and pain we could experience. The other side of it was that I think we become afraid of things like happiness because if we think if I'm too happy, I won't push so hard. I'll never see my potential. I know you work with high performers and people are trying to get to that level and they're afraid if I'm too happy, I'll be complacent, right? I'm not happy until I win the Super Bowl or defend the Super Bowl for the third time, right? So it keeps getting ratcheted up. Um, what we found is that, uh, or we're afraid our kids are going to be too happy because they'll slack off in school, right? Or if we're too happy, we won't fix the inequality and discrimination in this world. But that's what pleasure does. When we researched it, joy did the exact opposite. Joy triples our problem-solving levels, triples our creativity, raises our productivity. We live longer, our symptoms become less acute, a whole host of these benefits. So what we were finding was that uh, if we pursued happiness in a different way, instead of just a pleasure model, but actually could find joy as we were moving towards our potential, it actually allowed us to see our potential in the long run. So we we kind of get it twisted then. We think that, and and I hear what you're saying even about our kids or what the teams that we work with that there's almost this sense that we think we're equating or conflating pleasure and happiness, that if every single minute we're not feeling that sense of pleasure or uh, the reward or the dopamine hit, I'm just going to say it, that you know some people get from social media, right? And the likes that somehow then we're catastrophically failing, that, that not feeling elated means we're unhappy, but actually what your research has shown, I think, is that it's not that you're unhappy. It's it's almost equally as dangerous that you slide into apathy, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, the opposite of happiness isn't unhappiness. Unhappiness fuels great change, right? Unhappiness led to the civil rights movement. Unhappiness shows us when our systems are un unequal or when we're being immoral or when we're lonely, right? Mm -hmm. So. I think that unhappiness could fuel change within our lives. What we fight so hard against is apathy, which is the loss of the joy we feel moving towards our potential. Um, I went through depression in my own life. And for me, it was, I couldn't figure out why I wanted to improve because I stopped believing that change was even possible in the first place. And when we look at the world, what you see is you see so much of that. We think we're just our genes, our environment, or we think that the status quo is all there is, or we're waiting for the world to change, and then, then we can find happiness. But instead, what we're actually finding is when you study people, you study these positive outliers, you find that we could actually break the tyranny of genes and environment over our levels of happiness if we were making conscious and intentional, I know that's some of the work that you've been writing about, uh, efforts to try to really change our mindset and behavior. Well, and one of the things that I've heard you, I've either heard you say it or I've, I've read it. I, I can't remember which it is. And I apologize for that is you kind of flip the script on, on the idea of when you get pushback or people say, well, I'm a glass half full person. And people think they're either a glass half full person or a glass half empty person. And you're like, it doesn't matter if you're a glass half full person or a glass half empty when you have a pitcher on the table. And the story I'm telling myself when, when I hear that is that the pitcher are the tools, right? The pitcher are the habits, the understanding of the pieces of science that say, okay, yes, yep, maybe you are wired in X way. However, with a couple of tweaks, with a couple of habit changes and with some intentionality, you can fundamentally change 
the trajectory of your potential, your possibilities, and your mindset and the level of contentment, which I think is stunning, actually. Yeah, I, I think that oftentimes we we get stuck into two poles. We either think, you know, that I can do everything just by changing my internal thought process, right? You get, you know, the secret, right? Where if I just change the right. way that I think right. about the world, then yeah. suddenly diamonds will fall into my lap, right? right. Which it completely ignores yeah. the reality yeah. of the challenges <laughs> we have within our external world. But the other side of it is that I think people get paralyzed by the status quo. I think we see those problems around us as permanent and pervasive. So then the question then becomes, is it good or bad right now? Um, and what you're pointing out, and I think is so crucial, is this idea that that means we're not actually looking at the full picture. Um, because if we're not looking for that picture that we could fill up the glass, then we're just arguing about what currently is instead of what is going to happen next. And that's where I think positive psychology research gets exciting. Because as we find that people become more positive than their genes and their environment should have allowed, what we find is the trajectory, not only of their optimism improves, but every single one of their business and educational outcomes, we know how to test for. So what we were finding was it's not about trying to turn, you know, sugarcoat the present, right? Or wear rose colored glasses. Because when we sugarcoat the world, we make terrible decisions for the future. Sure. I think it's been interesting, sure. even in the midst of the pandemic, where you see, see these opposite camps, where one side says, let's just ignore it. Right. Like, let's ignore the problems that are going on in the world. Let's turn a blind eye to it, um, which is at, at best irrational optimism. And then the other side could see a problem, but then be completely paralyzed by it and becomes permanent and pervasive. The middle path is we realistically assess the present, but maintain the belief that eventually my behavior will matter if I'm linked with the right people within our world, which we're not only seeing in the midst of a global pandemic, we see it in every single one of the organizations you and I speak at, right? And all the ones that we do work at, what we're finding is that as leaders ignore the positive or get paralyzed by the present, they're missing out on that intentionality of the things that we can actually control. Right, right. And it is it is developing that realistic perspective. It's it's interesting, even as I study your work and and uh, I've always been a Martin uh, Seligman big fan for years as well, that it is that piece of intentionality and not just a um, kind of velvet, you know, velvet hammer, crystal rocks. Oh, I'm going to manifest the best of all of this. I know even from, from my past in the fighter pilot world, you know, we were very intentional about uncovering the, uh, the attributes or the things both the goods and the others, right? The failures and the positives, because we didn't want to leave success to chance. So it is being mindful of going, okay, this is what's working and this is what is not working and finding that agreed upon um, view of the set of facts, if you will, so that you can much more quickly get to a place that's more valuable and you're all headed to a more valuable place together than where you are right now. Um, but I think it's interesting because you've had such an interesting journey. Uh, you led one of the most uh, one of the most popular classes at Harvard, which which is a feat uh, on its own. But I'm I'm going to assume that from and I know a little bit about your background that that's not where you thought you were headed. So what was the path you thought you were going to be on? when and how you got to Harvard? So 
when I got to Harvard, um, I I thought I was going to be in the Navy. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I uh, I was on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Um, the only way I could afford to even go there was with the military paying for it. So, you know, we went through our, our boot camp light, the officer's orientation, right? Um, which I thought was the best college prep ever, <laughs> right? Because you go from like, you know, getting trophies for, you know, just participating to suddenly like they were yelling at me to do push-ups before I got off the bus. And I'm like, where's right. my trophy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then you go through all these things where you realize there are lots of things outside of your control and the discipline was the way to get through it. And you couldn't do things just on your own. Like, it doesn't matter if you get over the wall, as you know, if your food and comms are back behind you, right? So, um, all of that was fantastic, but I thought I was going to be in the military. Um, and then, um, and then I was afraid that I would never meet somebody <laughs> because I grew up in Waco, Texas, honestly, um, that, that I wouldn't normally go into this as deeply, but you asked, so I grew up in Waco. So I thought you were supposed to graduate from college at 22 and get married that June. Right. And then I'd have kids at 25. So how was I going to do that if I was on a nuclear submarine? So, um, then I got really interested in the divinity school. So I, instead, instead of going into Navy, went to divinity school, which I don't know why I thought that would help me get married faster and have kids. <laughs> that was a terrible decision. Um, but I love my time there. So I was either going to be like in the military, a Navy SEAL, of course, even though I can't swim, or I was going to be <laughs> a pastor. And then I fell in love with positive psychology because what um, Dr. Tal Ben Shahar is the one who started the class at Harvard on positive psychology, brought me into it, said the same questions I was asking at the Divinity School, they want to ask, but they want to use the scientific method to see, does any of this stuff actually work? Is it just people saying, hey, be grateful, right? Or it's so good to be optimistic, right? We want to see, does this change the neural pathways in your brain? Does this change your long-term outcomes in you know, business or educational or health outcomes? Um, so I got hooked. It's all the things I loved, right? Um, but now... We're getting to use them out with the military. Like I'm working with Colonel Rideout out at Camp Pendleton, working with six battalions of Marines, talking about how do we embed optimism into the way that they look at the world. And it's amazing. I have to tell you one story about that because I, I think it will appeal to the work that you do, that you speak on brilliantly all the time, that you write about. Um, so I got to go out there. First of all, I was so, I was so nervous. I, I did an exchange for doing a, getting an amphibious assault, um, going in the amphibious vehicles with my son, Leo, who loved it. He was you know five at the time. So like, I'm the best dad ever. Um, brought him out there. He was so great. And then I got into the room and they're all in their fatigues. Right? Like, so the, whole room, the whole room is just staring and not smiling. And I went for the unicorn story at the beginning of the TED talk, which was a terrible idea also. And uh, no one laughed. Um, but uh, as they were listening, they were processing about how optimism actually made them could raise their levels of combat effectiveness and change the way that they process the world. And one of the things that they did post the session is Colonel Rideout had them, when they would come into the meetings, they would come in and they would talk about all the screw ups in the Marines, right? Like the 1% or less that were, you know, having trouble or messing things up or getting in trouble or going down to Mexico or whatever the problem was, right? And he said, he flipped the script where he said, we're going to start every one of our meetings with, uh, I want, I'm ta he tasked all of his leaders to go out and find one story of growth to bring in from their team to talk about. And they had to do it really quick at the beginning and then they would get to all the screw ups, right? But he said it changed not only the meetings because they were so proud of what was happening on their teams and they would try and one up each other about how great it was, but also it changed how the leaders were looking at one another or looking at their team. 
they weren't just looking for who's going to screw up. They were also looking for who's really growing in the midst of it. So um, it was fascinating seeing these worlds from, you know, Christian Buddhist ethics, you know, weave back into how Marines, you know, get over walls. Sure. Well, and I know you know this, but all of the all of the neuroscience behind that shows that just from a survival perspective, our brains are actually wired to focus on the negative and retain the negative. So then clearly that's all you're going to look for and that's what you're going to focus on. So it's it is about understanding the science behind it. So we're not going to get sucked into the social media, toxic, you know, positivity, woo woo stuff. This is science backed information that shows, Hey, if you can do some of these actionable things, you can legitimately change the way you function, how you manage stress. And I say very intentionally managing stress because I know you've talked about it. I've written about it extensively this culture of or striving for eliminating stress is also equally as dangerous, right? Right. Um, Because we have to, you know, that a certain level of stress actually enhances your performance, but it's understanding how you manage that stress that gets you to more fully develop not only your potential, but your team's potential as well. And I think it's fascinating because of your experience and your exposure even at Harvard with that cohort of, of students that you were dealing with, let's just say they were the top 1% of students, right? Some could argue, right? Michigan students are going to argue that Yale's going to, you know, throw their hat in the ring. Stanford will, will, will maybe push back on that a little bit, but let's just say out of the whole entire cohort of students, we're, we're, that's a very, very high performing group of students. And yet mentally, And psychologically, the stress that so many of them feel and continue to feel, not just law school students or MBA, uh, you know, hopefuls there, is that they, out of that that group, only 1% is still going to be the 1%. So now you have 99% of the students on board that are in a position that they've never been there before. So when you look at this, or when you look at what's happening, what happened then, or where people are finding themselves right now, where they might be finding themselves in a very different position, suffering from nonstop uncertainty or even burnout. What what is one th- just one thing that your research has shown that can get people through this churn in a more healthy way? Yeah, that's why I love the work that you do, because I think it dovetails so well with the the things I've been seeing at Harvard. You're right. They were top 1% at wherever they started, and now half of them are below average, <laughs> right, as soon as right, they get to right. that new environment. Yeah. I think about that with professional athletes all the time, right? Like, they did it. They're amazing. And now we're like, that that player can't play at all, right? Right? Like we compare them to other pro players, right? And then even the best ones lose in the divisional playoffs, right? Like so right? I mean, how many people today are looking at going, oh, this is terrible, this is awful. And then what's the percentage of, of players on football teams right now as we're recording this that are already already looking at, okay, what what worked this weekend? What didn't? Because we're already starting to go to next year. You know, we, we kind of get caught in this cycle of, from a happiness or a satisfaction perspective, whether you're an athlete or lots of people dealing with disappointment today, you know, those owners that, you know, they, they feel such a crushing, profound sense of a loss or disappointment because they think I'll be happy when 
I'll be happy when we we get to the you know get to the playoffs. I'll be happy when or only if we make it to the Super Bowl, or I would be happy if I hit this PR right or get the grade. And yet, your research shows that. And again, a little sensitive right now, right around playoff time, right? So we'll we'll give people time to mourn that mourn that loss, <laughs> not even theoretically, but legitimately that. Your research is actually showing that we actually need to flip that paradigm, that happiness and being happy and striving towards potential is what fuels success, not the other way around. I mean, that is spectacularly profound. Yeah, I think we want to be tough, right? And being tough is uh, we're not going to be happy till we win the Super Bowl, um, right? And I like that mentality to some extent. I like the idea that we're not finished yet, right? Um, I think that that, that could be really healthy. I think what the challenge is, is that you don't feel like you have worth or happiness until you reach that point. Then we get into all sorts of problems because the problem is um, the majority, ever, you know, only one team of all the professional athletes is going to win each year, right? So right, the rest of them right. then are failures, right? I think we can talk about, I'm sorry you lost the game, but at some point in the conversation, at some point when we're admitting the realism of that we're mourning today because you lost, we also have to talk about the fact that you get to play professional football, right? Because otherwise we're missing out on part of reality. Because if we're only looking at uh, the deficits, we're missing out on the reality of how incredible most of our lives are. The fact that our hearts are beating right now that we don't even think about, we're like, of course it's beating. We're doing a podcast, right? We're doing this conversation with one another. But that's actually a challenge in the midst of some of the things that we've been seeing in some of the hospitals we've been working with. So I think one of the things I wanted to mention, because I want to go back one, one step before the happiness leads to success to answer the question you're you're posing, because I think it's so important, is because um, you write about this a lot. In, in, in UBS, in the middle of the banking crisis, I worked with all these bankers who were going through high levels of stress. And their approach, when we went and looked at their stress management programs, was let's eliminate the stress in your life which I see us making the exact same mistake right now, right? All over the place. And I feel the tendency to it of right now. I'm like, oh man, it'd be great if I didn't have any of the stress, <laughs> right? If you don't have any of the stress, you're like, why is no one calling me? <laughs> right? Right, Michelle right. and I go back and forth <laughs> between they're like, between like, my speaking career is over. No one's interested in happiness research anymore. And then you get some emails. You're like, oh, why do I have so many emails? <laughs> like literally, it's one of those two polls, right? But here's what we did. At UBS, the the... Uh, stress management program was um, you walk into a room and they said it was a PowerPoint presentation. And they'd say, um, did you know that stress is related to the 10 leading causes of death and disease in the U.S.? Do you know the World Health Organization found stress to be the number one killer at work? Next slide. Stress is catabolic, tears down every organ in your body. Next slide. So whatever you do at work, don't stress during this crisis. Right, <laughs> and it creates, right. a, as you know, this is your work. It creates a fight or flight response to our fight or flight response, which eliminates our ability to adapt in the midst of those challenges. There's great research proving that that's true. There's great research, as you know, proving the opposite, which is for some people, this is the same labs, you know, Harvard, Stale, uh, Yale, uh, Stanford. <laughs> I can't even say their name right. Um, it's so hard to mention them in conversation. Someone's trying to figure out um, right now if that was Freudian or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stale, yes, No offense, exactly. Yale East. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it's normally fail, but yeah, I like stale. That's good. Um, so uh, what we found was the same labs are saying things like, um, for some people, stress is the opposite, which makes sense. Um, if a gazelle is getting scratched by a lion, 
that's when you want their immune system at its highest possible level, not when they're sitting around eating grass, right? Um, they don't onboard you at boot camp. Or they don't onboard you to the military with a beach vacation. They do it with boot camp, right? <laughs> One of the most stressful situations because they know if you go through stress with the right lens and with other people, it transforms how that changes you. So what we got to do is to measure it. I went in there with Peter Salovey, who's now the president of Stale. I went out there with Alia Crum out of Stanford. And what we found was that uh, we measured them. And half of the managers, we had them go through a program. Here's how you decrease stress. The other ones, we told them, stress is enhancing. Embedded within every stress is meaning. If I tell you someone's failing math, you don't care. If I tell you your kid, we just found out is failing math, you feel stressed, there's meaning involved with the relationship. If your inbox is overflowing with spam, you don't care. If it's overflowing with leads you need to get back to, there's stress, there's meaning involved with the relationship. All we got people to do is acknowledge the stress, identify the meaning in the stress, and then channel, think about that meaning while you're doing the stress for a stressful activity. Um, that's it. It was a one-hour intervention. Six weeks later, their stress levels don't change at all which is actually really crucial in the story. I thought stress levels would drop by 5% and then we get published and that's all that matters. Uh, Peter and Ali uh, were right. It turns out that their stress levels don't change at all, but when they perceived meaning in their stress, the negative impacts of stress evaporated. That's headaches, backaches, fatigue, lower job effectiveness and burnout evaporated by 23% for the same level of stress, which meant stress was inevitable especially in jobs like being a fighter pilot, right? Or leading teams in the midst of a global pandemic or trying to be a parent, right? Those are inherently mm -hmm. stressful situations. Mm -hmm. Stress is inevitable, but its effects were mediated not by the amount, but how our mindset was about it. What happens is we experience stre the stressor without the meaning and that tears apart our bodies. But when you see meaning, suddenly we create meaningful narratives and social bonds. We talk about the rest of our life. Right. Well, and I would, I'm going to add one, one additional step to that as I'm listening to all of that and understanding the research and having gone deep into different vats of volumes of research on uh, PTSD, trauma responses, high performance, all of that. So I flip that into my world and I think, okay, so you've got, you've got the stressors, you have the meaning and then what, what you've done so brilliantly and albeit in a different way that, that I have is you have a set of tools that then gives you the capacity to cope for that. So one of the things that I kind of tie this back to is there was interesting research done by the United States Navy on Vietnam aircraft carrier pilots. And what's fascinating about this research is that what they found was that they were measuring their stress response and their heart rate responses is that when the pilots were out and they were actually under fire or getting shot at, their heart rates were actually lower than when they were coming back to land on the aircraft carrier, which is kind of crazy because you would think it would be the other way around, right? That their heart rates would be more elevated and the stress would be higher than when they were getting shot at when they were, than when they were landing. But yet they were able to uh, rely on their preparation and their training and narrowing their focus on those things that they could control, so their airspeed, uh, their altitude, their angle of attack, their lineup, when they were coming aboard the aircraft carrier. So when they were actually doing one of the most dangerous things in all of naval aviation. So when we think about that, that connection to understanding what it's going to take, but then having the tools to manage stress, to manage the really difficult 
that's where I think the manage it, the magic is in having some of those tools available that that's actually what allows us to work through really stressful environments. Sure. Absolutely. First of all, I love that. Um, because when you narrow it down to the things you can control, I mean, what we see on the happiness research side is that, uh, the reason why we see such a happiness advantage in people's lives are productivity improves, creativity triples, all those benefits to their business and educational outcomes is because their brains are not fragmented. Because what happens is we have a finite amount of resources, and if they're scattered between the things we can control and the things we can't control, then we're actually wasting those resources all the time. Same things with the, if I'm focused on my work, then I can have the entirety of my attention there. But if I'm processing all the tragedies that can befall <laughs> if I hit that ship, right? Like then my brain is actually taking resources away from the task. That makes so much sense the way that you describe it. Like it's not that you're completely ignoring them because in, in our world and even in the work that I encourage people to do from a planning and a preparation perspective is we're taking the time beforehand to look at really quickly, you know, what are threats and what are our resources? So it's not just all, you know, bubble gum and positive and yay, everything's going to be happy. Isn't this going to be awesome? Right? No, we're, we're actually taking a hard look at the reality. This is very reality based and then planning on our course of action so that we can be adaptable so that we can flex to the changing environment, but we're guarding against letting our attention get pulled in a thousand different directions. I love that. And you know, I think this is something you referenced earlier, and uh, I don't want to jump right to the practical part right yet without mentioning the conversation we we're having briefly before about um, toxic positivity, because I think that's what you're referencing too, right? Which is, you know, we don't want to have this like sugar coating of the reality, like, of course, I'm going to land on this ship. <laughs> it's going to be fine, right? Like, that it's doesn't fine. seem like how, yeah, exactly. Scary. You don't want that pilot in there, right? Um, you want the pilot who could actually recognize the threats and then overcome them, right? And the same thing with parenting, the same thing with leadership, which is, of course, all your work. But I think something that's so crucial, I think it's pulling us away so much right now in the zeitgeist that we have is that so many people feel like that there's this toxic positivity where, um, that we turn a blind eye to the problems. And what I would, I wish I could say to so many people, I'm glad we, I just want the opportunity. I've been practicing this in the shower. So let's see if this works out. Awesome. Uh, Cause I saw a New York times article and it was like toxic positivity exists and it's annoying. Right. And, and then Apple news picked it up. I was like, no, don't get that out there. There's no such thing I believe as toxic positivity. I know we have different uh, views. I don't think that there's toxic positivity. I think positivity is never toxic. What's toxic is ignorance. When you look at what people are complaining about, it's that people ignore the suffering of somebody else and then jump right to the positive solutions, right? So what happens is it's the ignorance in the problem that's the toxic part that uh, creates challenges to whether or not we're going to solve problems or our relationships with other people. What we need to do, actually, um, positivity is the belief that eventually our behavior will matter in the midst of the threats that we have within the system, right? So positivity is actually never maladaptive in those situations, right? Otherwise, what happens is, and I see it so often, I just talked to an HR company yesterday, and they were so worried about talking about happiness because of toxic positivity that was going around on social media, because they don't want to be perceived as not as being tone deaf. The challenge is, if the positive people are not speaking up, the entire social script is being written by the threats and the negatives and the symptoms. And in addition to that, we're silencing the voice that eventually needs to come in, which is what I think we need to do is we need to realistically assess the, the challenges and believe my behavior will allow me to overcome these threats 
we'll link to other people. So if it's, you know, a, a plane coming onto a ship, I know I'm also working with the radar people and with the, you know, the people that are, uh, I don't know if you call them, what would you call them ground crew if they're on a ship? Um, but the people that are- Sure, communications funny. folks. Yeah, right? You, it's a whole team, right? I mean, the pilot gets the glory, but like it's a whole team coming in to do this, right? And um, so so part of what I, I, I want is, um, you know, my wife, I remember this so vividly. I had a talk before COVID and uh, my flight was three hours delayed. I know you deal with this. We've had conversations about, you know, the challenges of getting to talks. Um, my flight was three hours delayed, but it meant I couldn't get home to put my son to sleep. And I felt like I'd been traveling too much. I was so frustrated. I called my wife and had she jumped right to, but you're a happiness researcher, everything's great. You got to go out and talk about happiness. Like you have great kids, you have me, I'm awesome, right? Like she could have jumped to all that. And my brain would have come up with a litany of all the negatives that also happened that day, right? It would have immediately jumped to, she's divorced from reality. So here's the challenges that she doesn't know about that person who was shaking her head in my talk, right? Or how this, you know, all those things. So instead she was like, I'm so sorry that that happened. I know you want to be here with your son and that sucks. I know you just want to be home. As soon as she acknowledged that a few minutes later, she asked me, you know, about are all the other flights uh, delayed? And I looked up at the board and almost all of them were canceled. This is why I remember this moment. Almost all of them were canceled. Mine was one of the few flights that was actually getting out, right? So on the one hand, the reality was I was three hours late. I wouldn't get to see Leo as I put him to, I wouldn't get to put him to sleep. The other reality is I was actually getting home that night. So I had to see the entirety of it, but it had to start with connection. It had to start with the acknowledging of what was actually going on with the system. So I think what people are railing against with toxic positivity is that we jump right to the solutions and to saying everything's perfect, which is not rational optimism, right? Rational optimism starts with a, as realistic assessment of the present, the good and the bad, as you were mentioning, but also maintains our belief, our behavior matters have linked to other people, which is why I think then the habits come in. <laughs> come back to your question. Um, and, and real quick, Sean, if I, yeah. if I can interrupt for just a second, what's, what's so compelling, I think, from to, that I'm pulling from what you sh just shared too, that here you are a world-class uh, positivity researcher slash scientist. Your wife is extraordinarily capable in this field as well. And that at the, at the bottom of all of this is you just wanted to feel heard. Right. Exactly. You wanted to feel heard. You wanted that connection for just a hot second. Like, I don't need you to solve the problem for me. I just need you to hear me for a second. And then you can move into the solutions. Right. And look it's at that connection piece. Yeah. You see this, right? Like with leaders, they either... Uh, ignore the problem and just talk about how great things are, <laughs> right? Like, which is not what we're actually describing in positive psychology. No positive psychologist suggests that we should ignore <laughs> the suffering or the challenges within the current system, right? Um, or what happens is they'll acknowledge the problem and then they stop there. They're like, I'm so sorry, that sucks, right? Or this is so challenging, or you must be exhausted, right? Like, and then we let people know that they were heard and then stop, right? But the voice we need so desperately is there's also things we can do within the system. Um, we got to work out with Genesis Health Systems with the hospital. And when I first got to go out to do that, some of the leaders there said they didn't want a happiness person coming because they thought it would be tone deaf. They were going through massive restructuring, letting people go, a pandemic had hit. Um, they were like, we'll talk about happiness when it's all over. And some of the other leaders said, if we don't talk about the positive, why would somebody come work here, right? Why would somebody care about what's happening to a patient? 
So we came in department by department and we found that when you leaned into the positive in the midst of those challenges, but also realized you weren't alone feeling those challenges, that positive collaboration, which leads right back into the work that you do, right? That positive collaboration and positive intentionality, we found within a six week period of time at hospitals where the, the burnout rates were skyrocketing, their burnout rates dropped in half of what they were pre-COVID and their patient safety ratings moved to the top 1% in the nation. So what we were finding was that if you acknowledge the challenge, but also with one another, believe that your behavior matters by creating these work routine changes or behavioral changes, then what we see is we don't stay in the negative. And that's what we see with counselors, right? Sometimes they're like, I'm sorry, that must really be hard. And then they stop. Once and then you, you're stuck. Yes. You're wallowing. Right. It's wallowing, <laughs> right? And we need to go to that place to connect with people, but then we need to help with one another, lift those people up. So it's those two challenges um, that weave through everything that when we, leaders are able to do it, those are the ones that we love, right? Those ones that are authentic and see our challenges and come down to the trenches with us, but also, you know, lead us to a greater success in the midst of it. And, and that being said then, so this is a learnable skill set that's available to all of us. That's right. right. And that's the important part. Yeah. So let's get to that. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so people are probably listening, going, uh, "Okay, okay. So what do I do? What do I do?" <laughs> that's the feedback I get in all my talks, which is great. Just get to the. Get, just get it's to a the great story. Do, great. Right? I'm glad everyone else is doing great. I'm yeah. drowning over here. Tell me what I do. <laughs> exactly. I find though that if we, and you see this too, like if you jump right to the takeaways, like if people just want your talk in a bullet form. It sounds paltry, right? Like if you're just like, hey, you know, like that, that's why I like the don't worry, be happy song when they always play or happy when I come up on stage, like either one, like miss kind of what we're saying here in the midst of it. Um, uh, but if you're like, hey, just be grateful and connect to other people and it'll dramatically improve your success outcomes. That sounds paltry because we don't know the science behind it. We don't understand where people are coming from. Um, but the habits are so important because from mindset shifts, come the behavioral changes. So I think the most practical part is the mindset shift. But if you don't have a practical change, you go right back to your original mindset. So the behavioral ones um, are, are very simple. We know there are lots of things that make people happier. Gardening, flying planes, um, you know, like uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, playing chess, right? I can't study any of those because I need to know what kind of plane you're in or what you're gardening with or how long you garden for it. And then I have to make leaders garden right? Like or fly a plane even, even more, more challenging. So what I look at are what are things you can routinize? Um, so we looked at two minute habits that, uh, that are akin to brushing your teeth. I met up with a former U.S. Surgeon, well, now Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. And um, I said, it's so frustrating because people think they can't change. And he said, um, it's crazy because everyone's room has teeth that should have rotted out by age 15 in a high sugar society. That's our genes, unless every day you brush your teeth. But if you create that one behavioral change, what it is to be human changes dramatically. Uh, uh, gratitude is one of those. We got people in American Express for 21 days in a row. You're like, finally, get to the practical parts. <laughs> 21 days in a row in American Express, we had bankers write down three things that they were grateful for and measure them in the middle of a banking crisis. 21 days later, it didn't work. The reason is that's not how gratitude actually works. There's a small part of your brain that scans for new things you're grateful for that never activates when I ask you what you're grateful for. If you say my work, my family, and my health, um, your brain doesn't benefit from that. What we had people do is scan 
And if you scan for three new things you're grateful for, this comes back to all the research you know, as you scan, it changes the way your brain is processing information. You basically build a background neural app that scans your world passively for the positives. People who are testing as low-level pessimists who do this for 45 seconds a day, we have astronauts doing this while they brush their teeth. We have you know, uh, people doing it the same red light. We had bankers do this before the markets open. We have hospital systems doing this before they start their staff meetings, writing down three new things that they're grateful for. When you do that, 21 days later, people who test as genetic pessimists are now testing as low-level optimists on average, which is amazing right? Because we thought we were our genes. Then we found four-year-old children around a dinner table. They're predisposed towards pessimism. If you do this for six weeks in a row where the parents model it for the child, six months later, before and after school, those pessimistic kids are now testing as low-level optimists on average, which is life-changing, so much more powerful than that's my pessimistic kid, that's my optimistic kid. That's their genes. It's the same thing with brushing our teeth. So we found lots of those. I'll go real fast form is we found that uh, exercise, 15-minute Brisk walk. This was found by the antidepressant companies, which many people adopted, not knowing this in the middle of the pandemic. They found a 15-minute brisk walk was the equivalent of taking the strongest tier of antidepressants for the first six months um, if you did it up to five times a week. Uh, if you do it for two years in a row, your relapse rate back to depression drops by 30%. And what they found was it wasn't a repudiation of antidepressants. It showed us why our behavior and intentionality mattered. Because what we found is as we were doing those habits, our brain saw that our behavior mattered. Then you create entire constellations of positive habits that buffer you against depression. Journaling about positive uh, experiences each day for two minutes a day um, dropped uh, with people with neuromuscular disease, dropped their pain, uh, uh, pain medication or doctor visits by 50%. At Google, we found if you got your hands off your keyboard for two minutes a day, just watch your breath go in and out. You feel like you're two minutes behind the rest of the day, but 21 days later of doing it, your accuracy rates improved by 10%. Your levels of happiness rise and stress levels for people on your team pre-COVID drop, even if they weren't um, uh, doing the meditation. But the last one is my favorite. We had people do a two minute pause of email each day, praising or thanking a different person. This is one I wish everyone who listened to this would just try out I mean, as soon as we finish, right? A two minute positive text message, praising or thanking someone in their life. If you do it, um, it'll be the best part of this research, um, of my research. Um, if you do it for three days in a row, um, you get addicted to it because you spend all day long thinking about how amazing you were for writing the email in the morning. But the real value we learned in the midst of the pandemic is day eight, day eight, everyone runs out of people. They're like, I'm not one of those crazy extroverts with 21 people. I wrote to everyone on my favorites list and one or two people work. That's everyone. Then you have to scan. And that's the important part. When you scan, there's a hidden ecosystem around us that we've lost touch with not only in life, but especially in the midst of a pandemic. And what happens in the midst of that is your brain starts to think your social connection smaller. But when you scan, you remember that mentor who got you into this or that you know, buddy from boot camp, or a camp you went to or a friend that you used to have or uh, another speaker on the circuit. So you're not alone with a three hour delayed flights, right? Or uh, someone who, you know, your kid's first grade teacher who transformed your kid's life, but you haven't talked to him in two years because your kid's in third grade, right? Or now 18, 19, 25, right? <laughs> what we find is uh, in the midst of those, you scan, you realize there's more people, but there's an awesome study that came out that found that loneliness is not the absence of people, it's the absence of feeling like you have a meaningful impact upon them or they upon you, which is solved with a two-minute text message or email. And what we found is if you do this for 21 days in a row, your social connection score rises to the top 15% of people worldwide. That two-minute change raises the greatest predictor of your long-term levels of happiness, 
the greatest predictor of a team success rate. That's Project Aristotle. And it's as social connection is as predictive of how long you will end up living as obesity, high blood pressure, or smoking. That's just crazy. And that's amazing science and amazing research. Let me, without, without, uh, without de-emphasizing everything, what you just said is, does this have to do with mirror neurons or mirror neurons? Is that the part that activates the social network part of it too, the connectedness, or is that a different piece of our brain? That's a separate part. It helps. The The mirror neurons are so cool. It's the part that makes us yawn when we see other people yawn, that we actually in our biology is sympathy and empathy, right? If I see somebody yawn, these mirror neurons, when you see it in your visual cortex, will light up and tell you, you're the one that's yawning. And you can pick up a fatigue response from someone sitting 50 feet away from you, right? Um, we found that it's not only true with smiles and yawns, but it's also true with negativity, stress, and uncertainty. That you could pick up on negativity, stress, and uncertainty like, like secondhand smoke, right? You don't have to be the one smoking to have the negative health implications. The same thing is true with how other people's brains were processing the world. So if you surround yourself with negative people, what we happens in those negative, if you're listening to negative podcasts instead of positive ones, right? If you're listening to negative books on tape or negative talk radio, or if your friends are negative, right? What happens is you're constantly being exposed to that. But what we found was you shift things at, at the risk Carlton. They have this awesome program where they would, if you walk within 10 feet of an employee at the risk Carlton, they're trained to make eye contact and smile at you. And within five feet, they're trained to say hello. It's called the 10, five rule. And we pulled that idea um, down to a group of hospitals post Hurricane Katrina down to Oshner. And we did it at the hospital system. And you you videotaped the hallways. We could only do it in the hallways because because of insurance, we weren't allowed into the doctor rooms. Um, but in the hallways, we had the staff do this. And it turns out you could watch the patients change the way that they interacted. They would learn the social script. I'm supposed to treat other people like they're human beings around here. But then you measure them and they found that their perception of the care that they received, uh, the quality of care skyrocketed. Um, we weren't even allowed in the doctor rooms. This was something that was happening through staff and through the janitors and through the doctors in the midst of like uh, a hallway before they got to their appointment. But it changed not only how they're interacting, but the results of, of that care. Right. It was just amazing. I mean, that is, that is a profound uh, ripple effect that it can start with one person, right? And it goes back to the genesis, I think, of, of your research that, you know, at the end of the day, that happiness fuels success, not the other way around, and that it starts with each and every one of us, right? We can't just sit back and wait for the invitation to make a difference or wait for it to happen. But with just, just do one, I, I tell people just do one of the things, right? Start with one, start with maybe writing that email first, start with maybe a 15 minute walk. If you can't do 15 minutes, do five. If you can't walk, roll outside. If you, if you can't do that, look out the window and think about it for 10 minutes, something, right? It's just that intentional nature of taking action that can be such a, a, a driver of contentment, happiness, and, and your potential. So Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this goodness, your research, your humor. Uh, I, you know, my hope is that this really, uh, hits some people when they need it. And your research is so important. Your findings so valuable, um, that the more people who can become aware of it, the more transformative it can be for all of us really. Yeah. And that's why I loved getting to do this with you because I think all this research comes down to not only this idea that happiness is important, but how 
important we are to one another, right? That we're learning so much that happiness is not an individual sport, right? That happiness actually can't be self-help. The greatest predictor of our long-term happiness and success is one another. So I'm grateful for this opportunity to get to talk with you. And we, we need that social connection even more in the midst of everything going on. Oh, for sure. 100%. Well, Sean, if people want to get in touch with you or follow your journey or your research, I know, I mean, you've been at Oprah's Super Soul Sundays, you've had a PBS special, HBO, all of these good things. So definitely trackable, but where can they find you now? Um, I'm on social media. Um, I try not to be very often though. <laughs> so um, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Um, I had a book come out called Big Potential. Um, which is my favorite book I've written so far. And the only reason I'm mentioning it is it's all the research that I care most about right now, which is I, this concept of how we can achieve, you know, some things alone, but big potential is what we achieve when we pursue happiness and success with one another. And that hills look 20 to 30% less steep when we're with one another. And fireflies, when they light up together, their success rate skyrockets. Um, and the same thing happens for human beings. So um, if you want to go into all the new research that we've been doing ever since the happiness advantage, it's all, it's all in big potential. Awesome. And we'll make sure to put links in the show notes and uh, ways to direct people to find, find that information as well. But thank you again, Sean. I really appreciate you joining us today and in my office. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today, I'd love if you left us a review so more fearless leaders just like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. If you're interested in reading more about Span of Control or fearless leadership, head on over to carrielorenz.com and we've got plenty of tools and resources available for you there. Thank you for sharing your time with me.